For three weeks now, we have followed the thought of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. And what we've done is looked at the roles and responsibilities of women. And I hope what we've done in doing so is seen the value of women as God has created them. But now we move forward. And if there was ever a time when you felt like, man, we spent too much time talking about women, we're now going to talk about men. (laughs) We move forward in our text and see what the Lord has to say about men. But specifically, we look at what the Lord has to say about men in leadership and what he says about those that he has chosen to lead. And so I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I want to bring to you a message I've titled, Mastery, the Noble Call to Leadership. For those of you using the Bible in front of you, you can find today's text on page 932. And please stand for the reading of God's word. First Timothy chapter 3, and though we'll only look at verse 1 this morning, we are going to read verse through verse 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. You may be seated. John Calvin remarks, It is no light matter to represent God's Son in such a great task as erecting and extending God's kingdom in caring for the salvation of souls whom the Lord himself has designed to purchase with his own blood and in ruling the church, which is God's inheritance. The call to lead God's people is a serious charge. As the creator of all things, When the call comes from him to lead his people, it is a call to care for his very creation, the very work of his very own hands. The closest we can come to to really understanding this is probably the comparison of a parent who asks someone to care for their children. Parents will not rely on just anyone, but only those who have shown themselves reliable and trustworthy. It is a reminder of just how sobering the job really is. The same is true for leadership. That is true when the Lord calls men to lead his people. They are caring for his children. The Lord paid a price for these people. They came at a great cost, the cost of his very own son. They were an expensive acquisition. And now they live in a physical world. They live in a physical world where they're being pursued by Satan and his followers who looks to deceive them, derail them, divert them 
from the sovereign Lord whom Satan opposes. To protect them and to care for them, the Lord has set certain individuals aside to be leaders over them. They are to guide and to guard the people. They are to preserve and protect the Lord's people. And in his perfect wisdom, the Lord not only calls select individuals to this task, but then he has set forth a list of qualifications that must be maintained for them to be qualified to serve in this task. If they are to keep people from going astray, they themselves must be kept from going astray as well. If they are to lead God's people in holiness, then they themselves should set the standard and show what it means to walk in holiness. Such a task means that they must exercise mastery over several aspects of life. That is, to lead well, they must prove their ability to lead themselves as well. They must be led by the Lord's Spirit. That is something we will discuss in the upcoming weeks. In the upcoming weeks, we will see the specific areas in which they must exercise a mastery in their own lives. But as Apostle Paul begins, he starts by drawing attention to the very call itself. The situation in Ephesus, where Paul is writing at the time, is dire. The leaders have failed to lead, and now Paul has left Timothy there to guide the people and to ground them in the Lord's truth. This was a church that began by the efforts of Paul. Paul founded the church in Ephesus. He had spent his own time there, training up leaders and then appointing them to leadership. While in prison, though, false teachers began to arise and lead the church away. Even though Paul himself warned them that this may happen in Acts 20, that they needed to be on guard and yet they still fell victim to it. And so now Paul seeks to rectify that situation. And he begins by doing some very difficult things. First, he confronts two of the false teachers directly, two of the leaders in the church, and dismisses them. It's something we talked about way back in June in 1 Timothy 1.20. But now, Paul has left Timothy there. <clears throat> Timothy is left behind, and in leaving him there, Paul gives instructions to what the church is to look like. In those instructions, he outlines leadership, who they are, what they do, why they do it. This morning we look at verse 1 of chapter 3, and in this short verse we learn five characteristics about the call to leadership. Those characteristics tell us much about what it means to lead the Lord's church, and so I want us to take them very seriously. We begin by considering the words of Thomas Cranmer. An Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, stood as a powerful figure over the church in England during the reigns of Henry VIII, Edward VI, and for a very short time, Queen Mary I. From his position, Cranmer is known for compiling the Book of Common Prayer, initiating several church reforms, and helping the Church of England to break from the church in Rome. Eventually, he would be burned at the stake by the authority, the authorization of Queen Mary. Assessing the state of the church at the time, Cranmer said this, and it's a little long, but this is him looking at his own churches. Just as the conditions of the state is ruined, when it is governed by people who are stupid, demanding, and burning with ambition, 
So in these times, the church of God is struggling, since it is committed to the care of those who are totally incompetent to assume so important a task, in which respect it has fallen very short, indeed, of those rules of the blessed Paul, which he prescribed to Timothy and Titus. Therefore, we must find an appropriate remedy for so serious a plague on our churches. Everyone who obtains living in any way whatsoever shall be most carefully tested and examined according to the form and procedure of our laws, lest a bishop lay his hand suddenly on someone and so become partner in crimes of others. Nor shall anyone be allowed to run a church unless he has been duly examined beforehand. Those words are Cranmer's own assessment of the condition of the church during his very own time number of hundreds of years ago at this point. He himself was a leader, and yet he does not hold back with his words of indictment. He speaks rightly of the need of leadership, a leadership that is, should be most carefully tested and examined, as he says. I find it slightly ironic that Cranmer is the one who advocates for qualified godly leadership because this is the same man who helped promote Henry VIII, Henry the yeah VIII's divorce from Catherine of Aragorn, even though there was no biblical basis for it. Furthermore, he subscribed to the idea that the supreme earthly ruler of the church was the king, and yet the king himself during that time was very much disqualified. That doesn't mean his words here ring less true. And they highlight the principle of 1 Timothy 3.1, the first principle, that the call of leadership is significant. The call to leadership is significant. The call to leadership is a godly desire, one that is initiated by the Lord's delegation. It is an important role, critical to the vitality of the church. Its significance is defined by that very first phrase, The saying is trustworthy. When Paul writes this saying is trustworthy, often it will cause us to hold our breath for a moment, to focus on the words that are going to follow, because we know that it means that there's something important that he is about to write, some important truth, and whatever that truth is, it will be reliable. Paul uses that phrase, this is a trustworthy saying, only five times each time in the pastoral epistles. I want to read each of those to you because I want you to hear something with each of them. 1 Timothy 1.15 The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. 1 Timothy 4.9-10 The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. 2 Timothy 2.11 The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. And finally, Titus 3.7-8 Being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. 
to use that phrase, this saying is trustworthy, is to refer to some sort of self-evident truth. It refers to something that is so obvious that there's no denying it. There's no way to argue against it. The only response a person can have is either to accept it as a true response or to suppress it so that it is not known and they don't have to contend with it. When Paul speaks of something this way, did you notice something, anything in particular in those verses that I just read to you? Every single reference I read to you, when Paul uses this phrase, it's always in reference to some portion or some aspect of life in Christ. Looking from this side of things, we can confidently say that the gospel and anything of Christ is so obviously true that it has to be embraced. And if one is not embracing it, then what are they doing? Romans chapter 1 tells us they suppress it. But then you look at our text, 1 Timothy 3.1. Paul uses the same phrase, but what does it describe here? The call to leadership and its qualifications. Why would Paul use an expression for elders that is usually he reserves for discussion about the word, work, and worth of Christ? The only reason I can come up with is that there's a relationship between overseers who are to guard the work and word and worth of Christ while also taking responsibility to guide people towards those things as well. So everything that's talked about in those other verses is, falls under responsibility of what overseers do. Their work is defined by that truth, by the truths of who Christ is. The fact that Paul uses the same phrase to discuss elder qualifications as he does for the gospel speaks to the very importance of this task. It tells us that the, Lord, the call to overseeing the Lord's people is a significant task. It is one that is highly valued by the Lord. The role of overseer has a long history in God's established plans. Exodus chapter 18, we read it this morning. We have this interaction between Moses and Jethro, his father-in-law. And Jethro observes that Moses is sitting before the people who come to him for counsel and judgment regarding their issues. And then observing this, Jethro himself offers some counsel to Moses, encouraging him to set aside other leadership for the task of the lesser things. He even gives thoughts to what this structure should look like. In the nation of Israel, wandering through the desert, that structure is going to look much different than the church today. But that's where leadership, biblical leadership, takes its formation. And crucial to the structure and advice that Jethro gives is not merely the abilities of men, but he actually lays out qualifications that they be trustworthy and not open to bribes, he says. Several millennium later, there's a discussion made in Acts chapter 6 when the apostles are overwhelmed with responsibility. And so what they do is then they call others in and, and appoint other men to care for the physical needs so they can focus on the spiritual needs. 
And then later on in Acts, Acts chapter 14, we're told of the plan to appoint elders in every single church. From Old Testament to New Testament, the Lord has always cared for his people. And part of his provision for care was the calling upon overseers. The call to leadership is significant. It is a work that is designated by God, and it is a work that is dedicated to God. Because the call to leadership is significant, it is also specific. Leadership is an important call. Any task delegated by the Lord is critical because it comes from the very one who knows all things and controls all things. But in several instances, like our passage in 1 Timothy 3, the Lord draws attention to the specific role of leadership, highlighting how important that role is. And because it is so important, it is not a task that's just for anyone. It's limited to specific individuals. Those who desire the role of overseer, they seek a good thing, but it's not for everyone to desire. The text places three limitations on an overseer that I want us to see. Notice what it reads there. If anyone aspires to the office. The first limitation worth discussing is that word anyone. More accurately, the word is any man. If any man aspires the office as overseer, it is an office, admittedly, that is limited by gender. Going back to our discussion from the last three weeks, does this mean that a woman is incapable and doesn't have the capabilities to fulfill a role? No, what is speaking to is that the Lord has given a design for the structure of the church. The role of overseer is reserved for men. Well, it shouldn't be a surprise for us based on what we've already learned. The very next verse in 1 Timothy 3 lays out the expectation that the overseer should have an ability to teach. But if we go back to verse 12 of the previous chapter, we see that the Lord has placed specific parameters on teaching. When he wrote, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. And so the role of overseer is limited to men only. But notice also how the trustworthy saying begins. If, if any man desires. With that word, the Lord places a second limitation on an overseer. If any man desires the office of overseer, he desires a good thing. But not every man will have that desire because not every person will be called by the will of the Lord. The desire for such a role comes from the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And not everyone is called to this role, just according to the purposes that God has set out. How does one know if the desire for overseers from the Lord or from the self? By the next limitation, by the following verses. The following verses, which we'll look at more in the upcoming weeks, they, they give these specific qualifications and those who do not fulfill those qualifications are not to be an overseer. They're not suitable for the Lord's call. In fact, it's safe to say that if one has a desire to be an overseer, and he does not meet those qualifications or those standards, then the desire is not a prompting from the spirit, but a prompting from the self. These limitations indicate that not everyone is called, and that's okay. It is limited to those men who are qualified and prompted by the Spirit. 
the fact that this call is specific, limited to those who are addressed in the text, it points back to just how significant the call is in our first point. If the call is to serve the Lord in this way, if it, if it wasn't significant, there would be no need for the call to be specific. There would be no need for qualifications. Think about any job. And usually a list of qualifications is given. And the more rigorous the job, the more rigorous the requirements. If one can't meet those requirements, then they're not hired. And if they are hired, it's usually got catastrophic consequences. I think of an example of the case of Scott Thompson. Scott Thompson was appointed the CEO of Yahoo in 2012, if you remember that internet company. Thompson claimed to have a computer science degree on his resume and in his official company biographies. But it was later discovered that he didn't have a computer science degree at all. That information was false. That revelation sparked controversy. It eroded confidence in his leadership. Ultimately, Thompson had to resign from his position as CEO after, after just months of a tenure. And the result were severe consequences in which it eroded trust in the company of any leadership. But then after Thompson, Yahoo hired somebody else. They had an intern for a couple of months, and then they hired Marissa Mayer. And Marissa Mayer is notable because she was always making headlines. She was always in the news. People were excited about her. First, because she was a woman CEO, head of a major company, but also because she was making decisions that were very revolutionary for that time. But she didn't have a lot of experience, not just in the field, but specifically, this was a large company with a lot of complexities that was on the decline, and she didn't have experience with a company on the decline like that. She had important roles at Google at the time, oversaw some great product development, but she really lacked the critical elements for managing what, Google was go what Yahoo was going through. During her tenure as an example, Yahoo made several acquisitions, buying a company called Tumblr for $1 billion that eventually went by the wayside. They basically wasted a billion dollars. There were controversies over her management style, decisions that she made, one of those being banning remote work from Yahoo employees. Yahoo's performance, it eventually continued to decline under her leadership. It didn't improve. And so the company was bought by Verizon in 2017. And now you hear almost nothing about Yahoo. The acquisition resulted in a lot of job cuts and really dismantled one of the pioneer companies of the internet. We could be appalled by the lack of discernment by Yahoo in hiring people one after the other that weren't qualified, but churches do this all the time. In searching only for someone to fill the role, they overlook the qualifications. They fail to examine their candidates thoroughly, something that Thomas Cranmer pointed out in the very quote that we read and began with. It's no surprise that churches are starting to look like the world because in failing to examine their candidates, the people that they put in leadership look more like the world than they do Christ. In some cases, they aren't even believers. Teaching outside the U.S. a couple weeks ago, and I met some missionaries, and they shared with me about their parents. 
Their parents are leaders in the very church that sent them out into the field. Yet they don't even think their parents are saved. They don't think their parents are believers. They're held in high regard in that church only because they're parents of the missionaries. And so they're given all these roles. But they think their parents are only there because it's a social club. The call to be an overseer is specific. It's limited by the Lord to those who are qualified. The more critical the job, the more specific the requirements. Because the Lord is specific about the call to leadership, it means the call is very serious. We see this by examining the title of that position given here, overseer. With that word overseer, I want you to note third that the call of leadership is serious. Too many men want the title but not the burden. Too many want the authority but not the responsibility. But the call to leadership is a serious call that too few people take with gravity. The title overseer given here in verse 1 is used for that role. But it's interchangeable with a number of other titles. Let me read verses 1 and 2 for you, at least from the ESV. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. And it goes on and on. We read the word overseer twice here. But the original language is actually used two different words. Verse 1 is the word common for sometimes translated bishop or overseer. But verse 2, the word is different. And it's actually the word that's commonly translated as elder. And yet clearly Paul is speaking of the same office. He would not say the office of overseer is good in verse 1 and then go to verse 2 and proceed to give the qualifications for a different office. It's clear that Paul is seeing the same role in view here. He does the same thing in Titus chapter 1. Verse 5, he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might, might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then he says in verse 7, For an overseer, as God's stewards, must be above reproach. Clearly again, he uses two different words, but the same office is in view. He's using elder and overseer for the same person. Acts chapter 20 then sheds even more light on the subject, on the word. Before leaving Ephesus, Paul calls the elders of the church together in verse 17. And as a preview next week, that will be our scripture reading next week, Acts chapter 20. So in verse 17, he calls the elders together. It says, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders to the church to come to him. And then all the verses that follow, Paul gives a defense of his ministry. He's, he's exhorting the leaders, telling him what he's done. But then he exhorts them further in verse 28 of Acts 20. And he says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you shepherds to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. He calls the elders together, but then he calls them shepherds, or the word we use for pastor. There's no difference between the words overseer, bishop, elder, or shepherd, or again, pastor. 
There are different terms to refer to the very same office. It is thought perhaps the different terms just reflect the different emphasis that was needed at that church when the letter was being written. Regardless, it's just important to note that they all mean the same person. It wasn't until Ignatius in the first century when a bishop or an overseer became a distinct office and then that hierarchy was developed where there was a bishop over churches and then elders and then so on. It's only even more recently when we've made the distinction between elders and pastors, though in reality they are the same person. The office of overseers gathering the responsibilities and the roles of all of those and joining them together And it calls upon them to supervise the spiritual life of the church. They're to provide oversight. That is what an overseer means. Overlook, oversight. They're there to guard the church and guard the people. Not merely from false teaching, but from missing the goal established by the Lord. Philippians 3.14. That is guiding them and guarding them from missing God's mark. Their task from the Lord is serious. It's more important than the role of CEO of Yahoo. By lacking qualifications for their job, Scott Thompson and Marissa Mayer did not merely fail in their responsibility to lead a business, but their failure had significant consequences. It impacted the lives of people. But if it is so serious for something temporal like that type of business, How much more important is the role for those things that have eternal consequences and ramifications? A man by the name of Thayer says it this way. An overseer is a man charged with the duty of seeing that things being done by others are done rightly. He acts as a curator, a guardian. It is the overseer that bears the ultimate responsibility for the church before God. As fathers will give an account for their leadership of their families before God, elders and overseers will give an account before God for their leadership of God's family. In history, the overseer didn't merely show up to meetings once a month. This was a time when persecution was high, and the first person to give their lives was the leaders of the church. And so a call to eldership at that time very much could have been a call to be a martyr. The call to leadership is serious. The leadership had the responsibility to not only care for the life of the church, but sometimes to give their own life for the church. (coughs) Too many men enter the role of overseer with too little respect for the role. Never do I want us to underestimate the seriousness of the task of the Lord's call. At the same time, amidst that sober reality of the call, we should note forth the call to leadership is special. The call to leadership is special. Notice what the verse says. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. The call of the Lord is a noble work. It is special not just in its duties, but it's in its blessings. Again, another longer quote, Cotton Mather, Puritan, describing the call, says the office of the Christian ministry, rightly understood as the most honorable and important that any man in the world would ever, can ever sustain. And it will be one of the wonders and employments of eternity to consider the reasons why the wisdom and goodness of God assigned this office to imperfect and guilty men. 
The great design and intention of the office of a Christian preacher are to restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men, to display in the most lively colors and proclaim in the clearest language the wonderful perfections, offices, and graces of the Son of God, and to attract the souls of men into a state of everlasting friendship with him. It is a work which an angel might wish for, as an honor to his character, ye an office which every angel in heaven might covet to be employed in for a thousand years to come. It is such an honorable, important, and useful office that if a man be put into it by God and made faithful and successful through life, he may look down with disdain upon a crown and shed a tear of pity on the brightest monarch on the earth. To serve the Lord as a shepherd is a special work. It's not a work that everyone is well-suited for, even if they do desire it. The notion that a person may desire to be part of the Lord's work in this way shows just how special that work is. Few people, if any, would ever seek a work that was not special in some way. Tell somebody that a task will be laborious and little appreciated and even less understood, and nobody is going to desire that. But the work of the Lord it contains these unique aspects that compels people to want to be part of it. The word desire there is a compound word made up of two words literally to mean upon and to be angry. As in someone who has anger upon them, they are seized by anger. And it's not saying the person desiring the position is angry. What that's trying to convey is the intensity of that desire. To desire something in this text is to yearn for it so much that one is burning inside and would be content to do nothing else. Even more critical to our understanding of this text is that desire is an outward expression of an inward change. That is to say that the person who desires the role of overseer, they have had such an inward change in their lives by the Lord's work that they now outwardly pursue participation in the Lord's work. Having been on the receiving end of God's work, they now want to be used by God for his purposes in the lives of others. The special nature of leadership is also captured by how it's described here. Noble or good, as some of your text may say. What is it that makes this, this, this work noble? First, it's a call to endure on behalf of people. The role of leadership calls upon men to get involved in the lives of people, sometimes in very messy situations, whether it be a difficult situation of discipline or an ugly life circumstance that someone is just carrying. The overseers are called to carry those burdens or shepherd those people through those circumstances. These are the situations that the world will run from, but the overseer, the leadership, they're called to run towards. It's also a noble task because elders are called not just to endure with people, but from people. There's a reason that the world runs from a lot of those situations. They are messy. They come at a cost. As sinners, people don't want to do the right thing in their efforts to not to, in those efforts to resist. Sometimes they will say and do some very awful things. And those must be endured. It's also noble, good work, because enduring with people and from people 
The hope on the other side is to see that it leads towards sanctification. If they are fulfilling their call, if leadership is fulfilling their call according to the Lord's instructions, they get the privilege and blessing of being used by God as part of the process of people's sanctification to see them transformed into Christ-likeness. I have no words to capture the privilege and the joy that comes from watching and helping people to, to get it, to finally understand what it means to follow the Lord and enjoy that and find their joy in him. But that also means that when we're unwilling to fulfill that call as the Lord instructs, we deprive ourselves of the Lord's blessing and we miss out on participating in that work. One final aspect to consider that makes this work noble. It's found later in 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 16. So our text is 1 Timothy 3, 1. And then we get these qualifications for elders and later deacons. But then, towards the end of the chapter, continuing the same theme, Paul writes this, beginning in verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Verse 16, great indeed, we confess is a mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Leadership is a noble task because it guides the church and people in fulfilling this goal, to proclaim Christ and to make the church a pillar and buttress of truth. The call to leadership is special. It is noble both in its function and its blessings. The Lord's people have been bought with a price. It was a price that no person could pay. Only the Lord could pay it. And of course, it cost the life of his son, Jesus Christ. And the way the Lord has chosen to guard and guide his people is through the labor of men he is called as overseers. As a result, the call to leadership is significant. It's an important call, perhaps outweighed only by a man's call to be a husband and father. And because it's significant, it's also specific. It's not meant for just any person, but only for those that the Lord is compelled to serve him according to the qualifications he has set forth. Those two characteristics, significant and specific, they tell us that the call to leadership is serious. Isn't, leadership's not just a secular responsibility. Here it's a sacred one. And finally, it's special. Few people have the capacity to endure it, and few people have the opportunity to experience it. With tremendous responsibility comes tremendous blessing, but with tremendous blessing comes tremendous responsibility. There's no other job like the call to leadership for the Lord. He has delegated responsible responsibility for his people to those that he has called to leaders. The church is referred to as Christ's inheritance. Elders and overseers then are given the task to care for the very inheritance that Christ will one day receive. That's a serious charge. That means that leadership becomes an issue of stewardship. 
They've been bought with a price, not by human sacrifice, but by Christ's sacrifice. And so the people are precious in his sight. Therefore, they should be precious in our sight. Let's pray. Our Father God, your way and your will is perfect. Far above the understanding and capabilities of ourselves, Lord, we see you at work. And the more we, we submit to your will, the more perfect we see it is, Lord. Father, we see that will laid out here by the words of the Apostle Paul, Lord. Father, that you have called men to leadership, Lord. And so, Father, it is our prayer that indeed that's what you do. You raise up men who are called to be godly leaders for you, taking the task seriously, that they may guide and steward the people that you've entrusted into their care, your, their care, the people that you bought with a price, the inheritance for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, may that task be so serious that they steward those people for their good, for your glory in all things. And so, Father, we, we thank you that indeed your way is perfect and it is displayed in this way, Lord. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.